Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com. Technology Geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, March 20th, 2022, and this is show number 880. This is going to be a really fun show this week, and we have a very special surprise coming up, so be sure to stay with us. Well, last week I told the story about how I created an Apple shortcut with an embedded shell script that tests to see if my network-attached storage is on the same network as my Mac, and if so, to mount a share volume. In my test for whether the server was on the same network, I copied an alert I found online that would say the server is pining for the fjords if it wasn't there. Listener Jill wrote in an explanation of that term that I did not remember. Jill wrote, Just in case you didn't know, Pining for the Fjords is from one of the most famous Monty Python sketches ever, the parrot sketch. The shopkeeper describes the eponymous parrot as pining for the fjords when it is, in fact, dead. Hence, pining for the fjords is a euphemism for being dead. Do yourself a favor, go watch or listen to the parrot sketch. You won't regret it. Well, I know that sketch, but I hadn't seen it in ages, so I went back and watched it again, and she's right. This is one of the great pieces of comedy of our time. It also gives me a chance to tell the best story, probably again, about my dad. When I was growing up, my dad was a huge influence on me in studying and excelling in school. Education was the number one thing to him. He was an engineer, and he groomed me in his own image, since my three older brothers pursued different paths, much to his chagrin. One day, while I was studying, he hollered down to my room to tell me to come see something on TV. I told him I couldn't watch TV with him because I was studying for a chemistry exam. He insisted I come up and see it. I again argued with him that this test was a midterm and I really needed to study. He replied, I promise you will remember this much more than anything you ever learned in chemistry. And of course, you probably guessed it was the first time he had ever seen Monty Python. He was right. I do remember that more than anything I ever learned in chemistry. My father had a wonderful sense of humor to go with his work ethic, and I think his appreciation of Monty Python proves it. Thanks, Jill, for explaining the joke I had entirely missed. I will always use pining for the fjords in my error messages from now on. This week's episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond is actually a Programming by Stealth adjacent installment. Bart calls these tidbits, and this is tidbit three of why. In this episode, Bart talks to us about the dangers of using other people's code in your code. And then he talks about the danger of not using other people's code in your code. He explains this seeming dichotomy and gives us ways to approach the problem taking a middle ground. He helps us think about how to choose whether to use another person's code and whose code to use, and even how to ensure it's kept up to date with security patches. It's definitely a philosophical installment, and it was triggered by a recent event where a developer maliciously broke his own code, impacting a lot of developers. It was actually sort of a success story of open source, which I didn't expect. You can find this episode in your podcatcher of choice under Programming by Stealth, and you can read Bart's fabulous tutorial show notes over at pbs.bartificer.net. I've been obsessed with diagramming the new Mac models recently, and in discussion with Tom Merritt of the Daily Tech News Show, we started thinking about how things were at Apple before Steve Jobs' triumphant return to Apple on September 16, 1997. Steve looked at the product lineup and immediately saw that there were far too many choices. I went through the awesome application Mac Tracker, and I mapped out every computer Apple was selling at the time, and added each of them, uh, for each of them, I added their time of death dates. 
In a diagram, I showed that there were only two models on this diagram that were allowed to gracefully age out, the Macintosh Performa 6360 and the PowerBook 2400C. It was after this that Steve presented his now-famous product strategy, a 2x2 matrix showing the two categories, desktop and portable, and the two audiences, consumer and pro, and how there could be just four models to satisfy all needs. And now in 2022, we're back to this. Before the Mac Pro is even in the picture for Apple Silicon, we've got four M1 Macs, actually one, two, three, four, five, six separate Mac models with M1s. We've got the M1 Pro, the M1 Max, and the regular M1. And we've actually got uh, three different iPads. Actually, I counted wrong. There's seven uh, Macs with the M1 processor and three iPads. Well, I showed those diagrams during a Daily Tech News Show episode just this week, and I got some interesting feedback from Tom Merritt and a few folks who wrote in after the show. They suggested that it was just as complicated during the Intel days because we did have to choose between i3, i5, i7, i9, and we had to choose graphics cards. That got me to thinking, and another diagram came out of that thinking. Using the awesome Mac Tracker application again and Draw.io, which is a desktop app for Diagrams.net, I created yet another diagram, this time for the 2019 13-inch and 15-inch MacBook Pro. What I discovered was we did have a lot of options like we have today, but they were not interdependent. Within the 15-inch MacBook Pro, you could choose from three different Intel processors, from a 2.6 GHz 6-core i7, all the way up to a 2.4 GHz 8-core i9. But that decision didn't affect whether you could have 16 or 32 GB of RAM, and all of those CPU decisions allowed you to choose any one of four graphics cards. In the 13-inch MacBook Pro, you were only given the option of an i5 or i7 processor, but that decision didn't affect how much RAM you could have, 8 or 16 gigabytes, and you were stuck with Intel Iris, uh, Intel Iris Plus Graphics 645, no matter which processor you chose. If we compare that to the M1 Pro and M1 Max decision tree that I posted back in October, you'll see why our new world is so much more complicated. Today, if you simply decide that a 14-inch MacBook Pro is right for you, you have to start by deciding how many CPU cores you need. Do you need 8 or 10? If you choose 8, you will get a 14-core GPU. If you go 10, you can have 14 or 16 cores. But if you choose 10 cores for your CPU, you now have four option available, options available for your GPU from 14 to 32 cores. Let's look at it from a different angle. Let's say you want 32 gigabytes of RAM. That's awesome. All options of M1 Pro and M1 Max of the 14-inch MacBook Pro are available to you. But if you want 64 gigabytes of RAM, you must get an M1 Max. Now you have to decide if you want a 24 or 32-core GPU. See what I mean? All of these decisions are interconnected when, before the M1s were around, they were independent decisions. Now I'm not complaining. Far from it. I am thrilled with the options available to us. I'm just saying that it's hard to even describe what the options are. If you, like Steve Jobs back in 1997, are trying to advise family and friends on which Mac laptop they should buy, I wish you the best of luck. I bet you can sympathize, sympathize with Steve when he said back in 97 that he couldn't figure out what to recommend to his friends and family. Well, at the beginning of the show, I promised you a surprise, and that surprise is coming right now. I'd like to introduce to you my very own husband, Steve Sheridan. 
A couple weeks ago, I heard a song about security, hackers, and passwords by Rachel Toback, CEO of Social Proof Security. It was a catchy, well-sung tune, so I looked around and found it was based on a famous sea shanty called Wellerman. Although the authorship is unknown, this song is believed to have been written in New Zealand by a pirate or shore whaler around 1860. Probably the most well-known performance of Wellerman was by Nathan Evans in 2021. It's a masterful performance with over 100 million views on YouTube. Hearing this song somehow inspired me to write new lyrics to the tune. However, in attempting to sing it, I quickly remembered I don't have a singing voice. But I endured, and now you will have to. So, with apologies to the composer of Wellerman and the many singers who have performed it well, I present the Nocilla Castaway Shanty. There once was a lass who liked to chat about tech stuff and Applecruft. She spoke to strangers in store lines, but was it apropos? Her passion was strong. She had to speak to like-minded others who might seek tech info tips and articles. So podcast audio. <laughs> so goes the Nusula Cash Show with listeners far and wide you know. Weekly, it's on your feed, so stay subscribed this show. The podcast started in '05, and many thought would not survive. Despite pod fate, she did endure, her listenership did grow. <laughs> so goes the No Silicast show, with listeners far and wide, you know. Weekly, it's on your feed, so stay subscribed this show. Community of Podfeed is very strong, supporting each other they get along. With inputs from listeners the show improves, and Podfeed makes it go. <laughs> so goes the No Silicast show, with listeners far and wide you know. Weekly, it's on your feed, so stay subscribed this show. Her live show is found in many forms on Podfeet, YouTube, and Discord. A scripted podcast is the norm. Her show notes do they flow. <laughs> so goes the Nuss and the Cast show with listeners far and wide, you know. If you are not subscribed, why not just make it so? Wow, that is so amazing. The The live audience is going bananas here. The Nocella Castaways that are here live with us, of course, are enjoying this quite a bit. Um, I didn't know anything about Steve doing this. All I knew was he was, was working on some super secret project for about two weeks because he ended up using a bunch of interesting software, learning new software in order to make that thing happen. And uh, it, it is just, I love it. I'm just thrilled with it. Um, he's decided that next week he's going to talk with me in a interview style. He's going to explain how he did it because he did use a lot of software tools. And I think it's really cool that we have our own theme song. I'm thrilled to tell you that the CSUN Assistive Tech Conference went on in person this last week, all masked, you had to approve vaccination status, so it was super safe. And uh, Steve and I got to go to it. We went for one day and we got uh, 10 interviews, had a great time having lunch with uh, Daryl Hilliker, who we haven't seen in years and years and years. So it was a really good time. So we've got two interviews for you today. And I want you to keep in mind that any interview you hear here 
hear here. <laughs> Any interview you hear on the podcast is also available as a video if you want to actually see the things that we're demonstrating. So you can follow the link in the show notes directly to the blog post that has the embedded YouTube links for all of the uh, materials that you hear from CSUN's Assistive Tech. With that, let's get started with our first interview. Well, we are at the CSUN Assistive Tech uh, Conference, and this is our first interview in three years. And uh, Ken Bradley from Eschenbach Optic has agreed to be our guinea pig. See if we can get back in the saddle here. Hi, hi Ken. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for coming to visit today. So my mother uh, was uh, visually impaired and had uh, one of the original VTECs, and it wow. was... Uh, I think it was a CRT probably, yeah. and it weighed about 11,000 pounds, and it had, was real low resolution, and not, it was probably black and white, if I remember correctly. But it looks like Eschenbach Optic has come a long ways uh, in actually the ability to maybe take your display with you, your, your reader. It, why don't you explain first to the audience what this kind of device does? Well, this is uh, an example of a video magnifier, and what video magnifiers do are really uh, provide the end user with the ability to benefit from magnification, which is a very common therapy that's employed for anybody that has especially central field loss, eye diseases, or conditions. So uh, this isn't, uh, just for those who are only listening, this isn't a magnifying glass. This is a display with a camera that shoots right. down at what you want to magnify? It's a closed-circuit video system. So it has a camera, it has a, a processor, it has a display system, and the combination of those things working together are now these days allow, are capable of providing a, a high-definition image for the user to benefit from at a wide range of magnification levels, well in excess of what historically has been available, especially through optical products, which is also an important part of our product line. And as you had mentioned, you know, the older units were big and cumbersome, and one of the themes that we're seeing now in, in device design uh, is portability and the ability to transport uh, simply, easily, and use them in multiple locations without having to duplicate the investment in technology. So this is just the latest example from Eschenbach. It's a it's a 22-inch uh, foldable. It's the only foldable desktop video magnifier with a 22-inch monitor. Uh, and and as I said immediately, when I looked at it, the, the display isn't foldable. The unit is foldable, unit so you can carry foldable. it. Absolutely. So the display in the unit, as opposed to the early VTEX mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> other types from... Uh, maybe the first part of this century. Uh, these are all integrated units where the display, the camera, the table base are all together in one product. Uh, they're not separate components. Uh, and uh, yeah, this is the, our latest uh, offering. It was introduced about three months ago. It's been very popular. Uh, and uh, it's... So so Ken uh, demonstrated how to fold it, and I said, you know, for the real comedy, I want him to walk me through how to do it. Now, I did do a test run, but I'm, I'm sure I'm still going to mess it up. So why don't you walk me through what I'm doing? Well, Allison, you're a pro. You did a great job on the trial run, and uh, let's do it again on camera. How does that sound? All right. Sounds good. Okay. What do I do first? Okay. Well, the first thing you're going to do is you're going to turn off the unit. Okay. And then what you're going to do is you're going to make the display as if it were a table. So you're going to tilt it backwards. It's a tiltable display. You're going to lift it up a little bit. Oops, sorry. Oh, we didn't do the camera. Didn't first. do the camera. So I let's do the camera. the camera. So, so we're going to tilt the camera back, and then we're just going to fold the lens cover over the camera. Okay. Now we're going to make a table out of it. Yeah, you missed a step there. Yeah, I did. Sorry about that. Okay, so now I've got it like a table. Now you've got it like a table. And, and for those who are watching the video, you see there were two red buttons, and these are the red buttons that you use to help collapse this device so that it's easily storable or transportable. So you're going to push that first button, and you're going to push that monitor all the way underneath until it is really parallel with that upright arm. You can't break it. Don't worry. I feel like I'm going to. 
There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Now there's one more button at the back. You're going to push that other red button and you're going to collapse it down. There you go. Perfect. Now and I notice there's a handle at the back. There is. There's an integrated handle at the back, which makes it easier for somebody to actually be able to transport it around. Now it's not a... Can I lift it? You can. It's 22 pounds. It's not... Um, it is not a portable device in that somebody's going to carry it with them in their bag when they go shopping. But the idea is that it's transportable so that if you've got somebody who's a snowbird who goes away for the winter or has a weekend home or simply would like to collapse it and get it out of the way when they have a dinner party. Oh, that's okay. You're, you're going to be fine. Okay, just it just opened up. It just opened up a little bit. So you can. There you go. Great. That, that's quite all right. Probably gave you bad advice. <laughs> I missed one of the trainings. <laughs> but, so it's a good thing I'm good at weightlifting, right? Yep, absolutely. So here, there you go. So that's pretty cool. I can see what you mean by it would be, you wouldn't do it every day probably. I mean, I, I suppose you could. It's all about how you, you know, uh, what locations do you wish to use your magnification solution in and for what length of time you want to do it. So, for instance, if you are using this vocationally, it's going to be probably set up in your workspace the entire day. And then whether or not you want to, you know, reuse that workspace for something else, you'll pack it up and set it out of the way. Yeah, I can, I can definitely see folding it up and setting it out of the way. Yeah. I would need a hand card, I think, if I was going to carry it every day. P potentially. A little, little rolly suitcase or and, something. And, and we have those as well. Oh, very good, very good. So if somebody was interested in this product, where would they go, Ken? Uh, they would go, they could contact us uh, via our website, www.eschenbach.com, or they can go to any of their uh, eye care professionals and simply mention that they saw a video magnifier from Eschenbach and they'll be able to get information there. And is this, is it, what model is this? This is the Vario Digital 22, and I just want to point out that there is a 16-inch version, which is certainly a little more lightweight and a little easier to get around for those that, you know, aren't weightlifters, let's say. This is very good. I'm, I'm excited about the improvements in this technology. I know it was amazing. Uh, for my mother 30, 40 years ago, but uh, I, I'm glad to see it's continuing to improve. Thank you Great. very much, Ken. Well, thanks for coming by. Pleasure speaking with you. I'm here with Allie of Bonacle, who has a very interesting system to allow people to play games on uh, devices using a hand controller. Can you describe what this is all about? Correct. So Bonacle is a braille entertainment platform for the blind. We're creating a very small device that looks like a mouse, but it really doesn't function like a mouse. So it has one braille cell that places that is basically placed under your fingertip, the index finger, and you have three buttons around it, like next and previous buttons and a select button, and you have two side buttons on the side. You connect Bonacle to your smart device, whether it's like iPhone or iPad, for example, and you get access to a library of applications, whether they're educational apps, productivity apps, or games. So do those uh, apps all come from Bonacle? Yeah, we do develop at the moment, we do develop our own apps and games, and we do have an SDK for any developer to integrate their own apps or develop apps for Bonacle to utilize a part of it. It's basically packed with sensors that can basically motion sensors, um, haptic feedbacks, uh, audio for sure, and tactile feedback. Oh, that's really cool. So I'm looking at this now. It looks like, I don't know how to describe that. It's kind of a teardrop shape about the size of my hand. And like you said, it's got three buttons. It's got a turquoise button in the middle, big buttons on either side, and then, then the single cell braille cell, right? Correct. So... 
For example, in here we have a very simple game. We call it Bo's Run. So we have a guide dog called Bo. This is a robotic guide dog and you need to basically train him to avoid obstacles. You'd have different obstacles in front of you. Each obstacle is represented in a different way on the, on the braille cell. And for example, if it's a short obstacle, you'd need to jump over it by sliding barnacle on the surface or on a table, for example, by sliding it forward. If it's a short or a, or a tall obstacle, you'd need to slide under it. So basically you'd slide barnacle backward and this way you'd glide under that obstacle. If it's a complete block, you'd need to switch lanes, so either go right or left by moving barnacle to the sides. Okay, I, th I think we, you should describe it while I play it. What yeah, do you think? Please. Can we do yeah. that? Yeah, All right, sure. I'm going to hold this. Yeah, no worries. Hold it real close to your mouth there. All right, right go ahead. Here. Yep. All right, so, so just, well, I can't find the play button. Yeah, there you go. So you tell me what I'm supposed to do. Oh, I think I just turned. Correct. So, so now, right, left, and front, and back. Yeah. Okay. So right now we can feel on under your fingertip a com a complete block. So the braille cell is completely up. That oh. means that it's blocked. Once you feel haptic feedback, you need to take action quickly by moving okay. sideways. Oh, uh, you're, you're getting the hang of it. Correct. Okay, I'm, going to, I'm going left, right. Left, now that's right. a hole. You need to jump over it. Okay, Once you feel the haptic, oh, there you I go. Perfect. I'm sliding forward. Oh, and I can figure. Oh, I'm going to go under that one. Correct. Oh, because I'm shorter than that. <laughs> you're okay. doing great. Yeah, that yeah, is perfect. Once. Yep. Ollie's telling me I'm doing, oh, I got nothing in front of me. Oh, uh, that's a, a crazy bike. A tricycle. Yep. And these. Oh, sorry. My my hand naturally kind of jitters. I'm going to jump that one. Yeah. Oh, I'm flying now. Perfect. Okay, looks like I got to go under this one. I'm going to slide back. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm cheating because I'm looking, but we really should have done. Whoops. We should have had me play it with my eyes closed. Absolutely. And actually, this is very important. The region we're actually focusing on games, because for blind people, that will actually improve their finger sensitivity. So they need to take the right action quickly at the right time. And that would pave the way for them to learn Braille and get better at Braille later on. And that would actually, that is why we're creating a lot of educational apps that they can use to learn Braille on their own. So, for example, we have an app that can teach them the alphabet in any language. I'm sorry, can you help me? Yeah. We're trying to there get you go. Correctly. No problem. Okay. We've got that. So now it's connected to an app, an alphabet app, that would basically describe what you're feeling. So this is the letter A. It's saying that this is the letter A. It's represented okay. by the dot one. If you click the next button, so it would speak out loud and say that this is letter B, what you're touching at the moment, and it's represented by the dots one and two. Okay, I'm going to turn the volume back up. I turned it down. Now I see why you wanted the volume up. Two. Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to hit B, next. C, this character, C, this character is represent, C, C, this character, D, this, D, this character, D, 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 this, D, this, D, this character is represented by dots 1, 4, and 5. And then if I click next. E, this character is represented by dots 1 and 5. And this way you'd be able to go through the alphabet and the num numbers and you'd be able to learn them. And then you can take it further to like a spelling app where you can just tell it a word, dictate a word or a sentence, and it will be represented under your fingertip in Braille and it does handed contractions as well. Oh, that's really cool. I've been looking for better ways to learn Braille. When I was a little girl, I got a piece of cardboard and I yeah. punched out the letters so that I could try to teach it to myself. It, it's like a superpower, really. You'd be the KB. It's secret code, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. It's unbelievable. It's very good to learn. I mean, we actually do get a lot of interest from sighted people and from parents who have blind children because they do need to help their kids in their education process. So oh, they yeah, do yeah. need to need Braille. And that's why we're focusing on the UI of the apps to actually provide all the information needed for anyone who's sighted around them to actually be able to help them out. So this is how it looks like. So the letter is represented in both text and Braille. 
I see. That's very cool. So, um, by the way, it's spelled B-O-N-O-C-L-E, like monocle, only monocle for yeah, Braille? It's, it's, it's short for Braille monocle. So that's kind of very similar. It's like a reading device. It's very portable. It shows you part of the text at a time. That's why we have one Braille cell. And when you move it, you will get the full picture of what you're reading. And that's kind of very similar to a monocle. Yes, yes. So uh, you mentioned iPad and iPhone. Does it also work on Android? It will for sure. We're working on that. But for now, we're starting off with iOS devices and then we'll expand to Android very soon. Very good. Very good. So where would people find this product? You can order it online at the moment on our website, www.beonocle.co. And that you'd be able to pre-order it. At the moment, on, on pre-order, you get 20% discount and we're shipping by next month. And uh, how much will that be costing? It's costing $500 at the moment under the discount. It's $399, so 20% off at the moment. Very interesting. Well, thank you very much, Ali. I appreciate your time. This thank is cool. You. Thank you so much. appreciate it. You know who I'm a big fan of? I'll tell you. William Osterheld. He just raised his pledge by 70% on Patreon. He's been supporting the show for a little while now, but he decided he wanted to do more. How could William not be my hero? If you want to be a hero and help keep the NoSillaCast and all of the shows we do here ad-free, please head over to podfeet.com slash Patreon and pick a dollar amount, or a euro amount, or a rupee amount, or a crown amount that shows the value you get out of the show. Thank you, William, for being our hero of the week. Well, it's that time of the week again. It is time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchats, and it looks like it was a light enough day. We get a we get a treat, an extra treat today, right, Bart? Yeah, the show notes were just looking really empty, and I had half an hour left until I was planning to be, you know, on the bike. And I was like, well, this story from Naked Security is fun. I can tell this. So we have a, I think I called it a deep dive, but yeah, it's, I thought it was fun. I'm hoping you enjoyed it too. Okay, great. Well, let's dig in. Okay, so uh, our follow-up section is very, 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 very strongly dominated by obviously the biggest story in the entirety of planet Earth, the continuing fallout around Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, So since last we spoke, TikTok uh, have limited their services in Russia to protect their employees against uh, the interesting new laws. Internet backbone giant Lumen has basically stopped serving Russian customers. That's a big deal because Lumen is one of those countries that connects country or sorry, one of those companies that connects like in massive, massive pipes. So that is a big deal for Russia to, to lose that access. That's going to really slow down their connectivity. So the connectivity to the rest of the world? Yeah, yeah, because basically Lumen are, comp- Lumen are the ISP's ISP. Mm, okay. All right. So the backbone between things. Between the ISPs. Yeah. So that's a big deal. Uh, you popped one into the show and said uh, LG have suspended all shipments to Russia, which that is that is a big deal because I think LG monitors, but new. Like LG, if I go into my local white goods store, LG everywhere. Yeah, apparently they're the largest electronic seller in Russia. And they, their statement is, I, I thought about posting the link to a bunch of different articles, but... The most interesting one is lgnewsroom.com, where it goes, we are suspending operations to Russia. You know, our thoughts are with all all Ukrainian people. Boom, done. Nothing that else. covers it, really. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting how long it took them, but it is, uh, it's significant. Well, if they're one of the biggest suppliers, it's a significant decision for them to take. Yeah. 
So, interesting. Uh, Twitter have put themselves onto Tor. So there is a .onion version of Twitter now so that you can uh, skirt around the censorship it if you are within Russia. Um, so that is useful. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you left the link to that because I actually went in and read that one. I didn't understand whether this was why this was good, but it's basically so people inside Russia can actually get to Twitter if they Correct. know the, the Tor address. Or yeah, .onion. so I, I yeah. think it's twitter.onion. Um, it should be twitter.onion if they're even vaguely I thought it was safe. something more obscure. And, uh, maybe, but, maybe someone's squatting on twitter.onion because, of course, the Wild West is a very Wild Westy place. I've never been on tour, so actually I'm just talking oh, really? about my... I went there once. Uh, yeah, no, it's a big, long, obscure Twitter... T-W-I-T-T-E-R-3-E-4-T-I-X. I'm nowhere near the dot .onion. It's like, huh. it almost looks like a hash. Oh, well, maybe... Maybe yeah. it is some sort. Maybe maybe that's how onion sites. But that's work. probably mm. so they can't block it, right? If it was, you know, if it was obvious, they could block it. Uh, no, maybe. Well, no, not because of the way the onion network works. But I, I don't know how did that onion TLD work. So I should stop talking when I don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, <laughs> Twitter go on tour. That'd be okay. good. Um, Meta have really been standing up to the Russian government, and it is having the expected effect. Um, so the first thing is Meta relaxed their rules against violent content on Facebook and Instagram. And it, they did have to take two slices at this, or two goes at this because um, their first statement I thought was pretty clear. As a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we have temporarily made allowances for forms of political expression that would normally violate our rules like violent speech such as death to the Russian invaders. We still won't allow credible calls for violence against Russian civilians. It was also specifically, you have to be in certain countries to be allowed to say that. So you and I ah. would not be allowed to write that. But if you were in Poland or, you know, any surrounding countries say, or obviously say in Ukraine, Ukraine. Yeah, you're allowed, to, you're allowed to say, you know, death to the Russian invaders. Seems reasonable to me. So I, I, I thought that was very reasonable, but uh, they got a lot of pushback on it. So we got some clarification from former British Deputy Prime Minister and VP for Global Affairs, uh, Nick mm. Clegg. Uh, So two quotes of note. Um, We are now narrowing the focus to make it explicitly clear in the guidance that it is never to be interpreted as condoning violence against Russians in general, which I thought was kind of obvious, but okay. We also do not permit calls to assassinate a head of state. So in order to remove any ambiguity about our stance, we are further narrowing the guidance to make explicit that we are not allowing calls for the death of the head of state on our, pl- or the death of a head of state on our platforms. Boy, they had to thread that needle real, Very real fine. narrow there. Yeah, yeah. Now, that was on an internal bulletin board system to help their moderators moderate. I am... Uh glad to see they're saying not against Russian civilians. Uh, while I was at the CSUN's assistive tech conference this week, I met a woman who had an interesting accent. And I always ask, oh, where are you from? And mm. she said, I'm from Crimea. And I, th- I, I thought about it afterwards is I wonder if six months ago she would have said Russia or would she or did she mean Ukraine would she have said Ukraine before and Ukraine now, or would she have said Russia then and Crimea now? I, I don't know. Interesting one. I, I didn't think I, about it when she said it, but I just, I gave her sympathy either way. Right. right. Well, yeah, because it doesn't really matter which, which way yeah. around it is. Like, it, it's not been a good time. 
It, it, you told me about this yesterday, and I've sort of been noodling on it a bit in my head, and it reminds me a lot of Northern Ireland, where people would go out of their way to avoid saying certain places, because if you say certain places, it has meaning. The classic example being there's a city on the border which is called Derry or Londonderry, depending on which community you are from. And mm. if, you're in, if you're in a professional context, you will avoid saying the name of the city first in any conversation. You will allow your interlocutor, you know, the person you're talking to, to say it first and you will mirror. So oh, if you're talking to someone and they say, yeah, I was in Londonderry yesterday, you'll make a mental note, okay, it's Londonderry for that guy. Huh. Because otherwise you're basically asserting a political stance. And if you're in a wow. business context, you're trying to avoid it. And so I'm just thinking, if I was from, you know, Crime the Crimean Peninsula, mm-hmm. I would probably steer clear of saying Russia or Ukraine and just say Crimea, because that is that is a true fact, right? <laughs> As opposed to those false facts. Um, yes. Yeah. Sorry, sorry it, Joe. I just can't resist. <laughs> <laughs> it's... Uh, yeah, it makes it makes things interesting, but it it made me think about would would she be worried about retribution and you know some sort of verbal conflict had she said Russia, or even vice versa, right? If you're if you're at a conference and you're you're there to you're there to do whatever you're there to do, you you're, you're basically trying to sidestep a political conversation is what you're doing, right? Right. But I was thinking about violence against Russians. That is yeah. certain. Yeah, you're right. That is that is absolutely a factor. That, that I I would I would worry about it too if I were in that position. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, so okay. So all of that we got out of the way. So needless to say, that did not make the Russian government particularly happy. Even if there is an explicit exemption for a calling for the assassination of of Putin. That still doesn't help. Um, the Russian government filed suit against their own uh, regulator, Roskomnadzor, uh, asking them to immediately block all of Meta's content. Um, and the regulator, shock and or horror, did indeed block Instagram. Now, Facebook was already blocked, but they didn't actually block Messenger. Uh, oh, Facebook Messenger's not blocked? Interesting. No. So of the three, two are now blocked, but one is not. And I have heard what, all sorts of analysts... What about WhatsApp? Sorry. Okay, WhatsApp then is the one that's still allowed. Basically, it's... Uh, face, Meta have three properties, Facebook, Instagram, and another one. Okay. The other one is still up and running, so that must be WhatsApp. WhatsApp, Yeah. Yeah, because it would be weird to have Facebook Messenger, not Facebook. I don't yeah, think no, I are, knew it was instant messaging, but not... Yeah, yeah, sorry, the wrong, okay. wrong brand name. Uh, and the commentary seems to be that it's so popular, it would probably cause them actual problems in terms of re- revolt. So part of me hmm. wishes they would block it. But, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, YouTube uh, have paused monetization on from Russia. Wow. And they have blocked RT and Sputnik globally, which is, yeah. And RT and Sputnik are, one Not of those was really a satellite. <laughs> are those supposed news? That's a good description. Supposed okay. news, yes. Okay. Um, yes. Or propaganda, as we call it. Um, the Ukrainian telecommunication industry, basically all of the ISPs who used to be in great big competition with each other, they have all gotten together and they are now working together interconnecting with each other in all sorts of ways to just keep as much connectivity as they possibly can within the country. Which is, I guess you could argue, not surprising, but it's heartening to see that kind of, we're all in this together. 
They're not worrying about building each other for bandwidth. They're just connecting all the pipes together and keeping it all flowing. Probably not a surprise to anyone, Brian Krebs is reporting a tenfold increase on cybersecurity attacks on Ukraine. Oof, we sort of saw that coming, right? And Ukraine was in the firing line long before this happened, right? Anyone remember NotPetya? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's how long Ukraine has been in the firing line of the Russian, um, not the state really, uh, cyber attacks. Bit like RT, not the state really, we swear. Um, Listener Linda sent me a link to an interesting uh, approach to bypassing censorship. It's a website where you can basically type messages, which will then be used, sent randomly to SMS in, randomly to Russians over SMS. So if you speak Russian, you can basically type messages to random Russians and beam them into the country. From, to random Russians? Yeah, just, they're just random telephone numbers in Russia. Oh, wow. Oh, that, that's interesting. Sort of like where there's, there's people who have successfully like dropped USB sticks into North Korea. That, yeah, exactly. That Same kind thing, of an only idea. a little higher tech. Wow, yeah. that's an interesting idea. It is, which immediately reminded me of a news story. I was trying to decide whether or not it was appropriate to put in here, and then I decided it was. So during the Cold War, one of the things that both Russia and the West did was to use shortwave radio to send their information into and out of Russia. Because you can't block shortwave. It bounces off the ionosphere and it basically goes around the world. The BBC have turned it back on. BBC World Service is broadcasting on shortwave again. So Uh, where are they broadcasting from? Shortwave doesn't go very far, does it? No, no, it does. It bounces off the ionosphere. It's the frequency that you basically goes around the whole world. It never stops. Oh, wow. It's like a fiber optic, right? It's just bouncing around inside. Oh, wow. yeah, so that is uh, that is kind of weird. Um, there's a new story on The Verge, but I actually really enjoyed an entire episode about it uh, on Rico Daily, uh, which is a good tech podcast as well. Do you need a special kind of receiver to get shortwave, like a shortwave radio? Yes, uh, but they're quite, they well, certainly were quite common for a long time. Um, so, you know, those number stations and all those kind of things, that's all on shortwave. Number stations? Uh, if you'd like to go down a rabbit hole sometime. Pop that into the Googles and have fun. Okay. It's, it is a thing. And if you get fascinated with it, it can be a very time-consuming thing. <laughs> okay. So anyway, I just thought it was interesting that the BBC's response is, okay, we, we remember this. We know what to do. Just do that wow. again. Wow. Um, and then in terms of, so that's, that's all the Ukraine stuff. Our other long-running story we usually spend all of our time talking about, particularly during the pandemic, was how social media is trying to not suck. And 99% of the time, I have been very positive about Twitter under their new old CEO, or old new, or whatever way you want to describe coming back. Um, because on the whole, there has been a genuine attempt to detoxify Twitter, and... Obviously, no magic wands, but I've, the trajectory has been good. Well, they very, very briefly went completely off the rails, in my opinion. <laughs> they changed their interface so that you couldn't avoid having the default interface be the algorithm. <laughs> and the whole reason Facebook is a toxic cesspool is the bloody algorithm. The right. last thing we want is to be enforcing the bloody algorithm on people. Now, they... 
backtrack pretty bloody quick because not only is it a bad idea, they also implemented it badly, which is a double whammy. And I don't know if the the bad implementation is definitely gone. Whether the bad idea is gone, I don't know. So it yeah, is. I, I, I got to do a, a phase where I was thinking that people hating the algorithm is just was just a funny phrase of like people afraid of five G kind of a thing. And until uh, Francis Haugen explained what the algorithm does, and my whole attitude has changed on that. So she explains it very well, actually. Yeah. Um, her conversation with Karis Fisher is it's months ago now, and I linked, I, I picked it as a, a as either an interesting insight or something else on here. But I, I still think of that as being one of the best podcasts I've heard in like the year. Jeez. Yeah, I, I that was really good. If you want a, a smaller version, but I, the uh, testimony before Congress was bone chilling. I mean, it was it was it as all. bad as yeah. this, that social was it the social network was that the, yeah. the horrific thing you made me watch? <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> the, but that I mean, will, it's, I will, you needed to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But but it's on the par with that. It's that disturbing. Right. Except Ooh. like completely no no doubt that it was facts. So yeah. Oof. Wow. Okay, let's get off these topics. These are depressing. Yeah. Okay. So first deep dive is not the happy one. Um, I think it is important to highlight a piece of news. On the one hand, it's old news. On the other hand, it's still worth highlighting. So Sophos have released a report detailing two approaches being used by cryptocurrency scammers at the moment. And it's very important to say that these are not hacks. There is no technology being bypassed here. This is entirely down to social engineering. This is a way in which the the bad guys are tricking iOS users into using legitimate features in an in a way that is against the user. Bad so you, people. Bad people tricking users into using features for bad reasons. So the features are neutral, right? right? The features are the features don't have good or it's bad. It's like using a can of tuna to club club somebody. Right. Or, you know, yeah, yeah. I usually reach <laughs> for the chainsaw example, but a can of tuna seems less dramatic. <laughs> Just came out of my out of nowhere. Yeah, I like it. So the first of these is a wonderful service called Test Flight that Apple actually bought. It used to be an independent company and Apple actually bought them because they were so good. And so Test Flight is a mechanism for testing apps before App Store review. So it's a tool for developers to get some help developing their apps so that they can knock the edges off and get the app ready for app review. And so to actually join Test Flight, you have to effectively enroll your phone into the beta program and it will put up all sorts of messages telling you you're doing something really quite dramatic and you end up installing a profile on your phone. Um, did you test for Alistair when he was doing the PodFeed app all those years ago? Because that would have been test flight. Um, I've done test flight with a lot of different apps. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, it's yeah. not a thing you just do on an accident, right? It's, it involves a whole bunch of pointy-clicky, well, not tappy-clicky. And, and they don't get a lot of, you can't have like a million people in your test flight, I don't think. I think you had a limited number. Correct. Correct. Um, I, I don't know what that number is, but it is it is a number dramatically less than infinity. Um, dramatically <laughs> less than infinity. Um, I, hundreds, I would imagine. Oh, jeez. Um, 10,000. <laughs> it's bigger than I thought. It's still a lot less than infinity, right? It's still, a, sure. you know, as the country goes, that's a that's I thought a small it was like town. 100. I thought it was like 100, but still, okay. I may have changed over time as well. Yeah. Um, 
So what they're do what's happening is scammers who are attempting to steal cryptocurrency are pretending that they have this really amazing app that the man is trying to stop you getting to. And in order to install this amazing app, you have to go through these hoops. So they're tricking you into install enrolling your device into the beta program into these beta programs, and then they're sending apps at you that are completely unreviewed. And they ask you to log into your crypto wallet. At which point in time they steal all of your Bitcoin and or your Ethereum and or all of your NFTs and whatever the hell else you have going on. So it's social engineering. They're tricking you into installing malware. It is it's Trojan horse territory. It is not hacking. It is go after the squishy human organic bit. And another technique they're using, probably not as dramatic a technique, but on the iPhone, before we were allowed to have real apps, Steve Jobs tried to convince us all that web apps were the future. I don't know if you remember how well that went over with the community. <laughs> the yeah. answer is not very. But it's still a feature, it's still a function that works. You can take a website and stick it to your home screen in such a way that when you click on the icon on your home screen, it's a web page that opens, but it opens without the usual browser bits and bobs. So the address bar isn't in your way and stuff. It opens sort like, of like an time app. shifter clock. Exactly. Actually, brilliant. Yes, thank you. That is a perfect example of the feature in its actual legitimate use. Well, if you can't make an app because it would never pass review or you don't want to trick people into joining a beta program, well, why not trick people into sticking it on the desktop and so that they think they're running an app and then run whatever the heck you want to try to trick them into giving up the password for their crypto wallet? So again, it's another way of making their illegitimate websites look more legitimate by making them seem like an app. And so they have like get buttons, which look like an app store button, but you never actually go to the app store because there is no app store. It's yeah. Yeah. It's all trickery. It's all actually, trickery. That, you know, that reminds me, there was an app that, uh, oh, God, was it from Ring? I think it was the old days for Ring. They didn't have an iOS app, but they had, or they didn't have a Mac uh, app, but they had a button that said Mac app store and oh, you would yes. press it and it would download, but it wasn't the Mac app store. That's a perfect example of it. Now, they were giving you a real app. They were just being dishonest about it. They weren't being evil, fully evil. Yeah. I didn't like it, but yeah. Yeah, you see, take that technique and you go a step further and you use it to distribute malware instead of legitimate apps, you know, dishonestly. Yeah. So, yeah, basically... Be be on the lookout for these things. If someone's trying to make you jump through hoops to install an app because you're sticking it to the man, you're probably not. <laughs> you're probably hacking yourself. Yeah. <laughs> so just be on the lookout. Okay, now we get to do the fun one. So, right. The short thing just to say is there was a bug in OpenSSL. OpenSSL is a pretty important library. It is used many, many, many places to make the internet go. It it provides the S in HTTPS and a lot of things. It was a small bug, literally in a dusty part of the code no one had needed to look at for ages. Um, I learned a new word, by the way. An edge case that's very rare, there's actually a word for it because there's something even rarer than an edge. It's a place where two edges meet, corner cases. Oh, okay. So this was a corner case. So it was really deep down in the dusty code. And so if you're running a server, you may well have an update for OpenSSL. The only thing that would have happened if you have an out-of-date version is that it was possible for someone to use a maliciously created SSL certificate to put your server into an infinite loop. 
zero danger of information leakage, zero danger of remote code execution, literally just a nuisance. Okay. Just patch yourself problem solved. So it's not a it's not a security medium from the auga auga patch your server now, patch your server now. What was interesting about it was that the guys at Naked Security do this quite often. And I say the guys because it's Paul. Uh, Paul Duckin is the guy who does it. He he uses security vulnerabilities to demonstrate that it's often really simple programming bugs and that everyone who writes code should know that you can make these simple mistakes and they can have really quite big outcomes. And so in this case, it comes down to a very simple piece of advice is that when you're putting a test to end a loop, don't check to see whether you have arrived at the boundary. Check whether you have crossed the boundary, which he describes as checking which side of the fence you're on. Oh, okay. And it sounds like it shouldn't matter because 99% of the time it doesn't matter. But if you add a little bit too much new logic, so if you're, you know, if your loop is small and short and you can see both ends of it on the one screen, you're probably not likely to make a mistake. But if your loop becomes a little bit more complicated, someone can add a perfectly innocent piece of new functionality and you can end up jumping the fence. Hmm. And if you're okay, not going to describe that more clearly, I am. I in am. an example so, for us? I am. So I. And this JavaScript will run in the in the JavaScript console on your browser, should you wish to play along, by the way. But it's not important, right? So we imagine the world's simplest loop, right? Let's, make let's remember, this is not the programming by stealth audience. So we're going to go easy on this. Indeed. Okay. So the language in the show notes happens to be JavaScript. This okay. is completely generic. This could be anything, right? So you make a counter and you give it the value of five. And then you have a loop that says, while the counter is not zero, print the pancake emoji and reduce the value of the counter by one. So the okay. first time through the loop, is five equal to zero? No, it isn't. We shall continue. Print out the pancakes. Reduce my counter by one. The counter is now four. Is four equal to zero? No, it isn't. More pancakes. Reduced by one. Three. More pancakes. Reduced by one. Two. More pancakes. Reduced by one. One. No, okay, we get more pancakes reduced by one, zero. Is zero not equal to zero? No, zero is in fact equal to zero. Cease. Leave the loop. No infinity here. Okay. So we get five pancakes. It, we could equally write the loop so that instead of saying while the counter is not zero, we could say while the counter is greater than zero. And the effect of that is invisible. We get five pancakes. So in normal times, checking whether you are on the boundary versus checking whether you have crossed the boundary don't look different. But imagine we add a new feature, right? We've written our code and it's working fine. And then 10 years later, because OpenSSL really has been around 10 years, or no, it's been around 20 or 30 right? Code has a life. So we come back later and decide we want to add a little Easter egg into our code. And if the current Unix timestamp is a palindrome, we want to not print a pancake. So most of the time the code runs, it's got to have five pancakes. But every now and then, whenever there's a palindrome, no pancake for you. Wait, how is a Unix timestamp a palindrome? 
Like, well, it's it's ten digits, so they can be a palindrome. Would would the Unix timestamp is ten digits? I don't know what it looks like. It's it's the number of milliseconds since 1970, so it's a number. So numbers could be palindromes, right? Okay, and it's always so a ten digit number. It is at the moment. In 1970, it was a one digit number. Very briefly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. But the point is, it's a number. So a number, of course, could like you know, uh, one two one is a palindrome. One two okay. two one is a palindrome. Right. Got it's you. just the only reason I'm picking it is because it's something that just changes all the time. That's kind of random, right? Okay. So, if we happen to hit a palindrome of the Unix timestamp, don't print a pancake. It's an arbitrary, stupid thing, but it's <laughs> it's a corner case, right? I picked okay. something obscure because I want this code to do the normal thing almost always. So, we add in, we leave our logic exactly as it is. We've gone back to checking the fence, right? While the counter is not equal to zero. Because remember, we're, we're, we're being naive here. We're doing it wrong. Okay. So we have our code like before, print our pancakes, reduce the counter by one. But now we're saying if it's a palindrome, we want to have one less pancake. So, you know, I have two lines of code that get the Unix timestamp and reverse it. That really doesn't matter. The point is I have a number. I have the reverse of the number. I check to see if the two are the same as each other, which is a palindrome. Huh. If they are... I reduce my counter by one again. Oh. So it's actually the done twice. If it's a palindrome, we do it twice. Okay. So now, 99% of the time, there are no palindromes. So we get five pancakes. So our corner case, not in, the, not, not in the picture whatsoever, right? This code could run on the internet for a decade, right? Absolutely fine. No palindromes. Everything's fine. If we hit a palindrome four out of five times... The code is still fine. Okay. Because if we hit a palindrome oh, when the because counter if is it's five, at five, it'll jump down to three, you're okay. Fine. If it's exactly. at four, it jumps down to two. Oh, I see what you're saying. But if you hit hit it at one. One, it jumps to minus one. We have jumped the fence. We have And an it's gonna keep getting now. smaller because you've now you're on the other side of the fence. It's just gonna yeah. keep going negative one, negative two, negative three. Forever, you have an ah, infinite loop okay. at a corner case, right? It's an edge case of an edge case. So that bug could exist in that code for ages. And you would never someone know. discovers how to trip it. And ah. that's exactly what happened inside OpenSSL. And the solution is never to check, never end your loops on a specific magic value. Check to see, are you in the range or out of the range? Which side of the fence am I on? So changing that while statement, instead of saying while the counter is not equal to zero, say while the counter is greater than zero. And then you can't have that kind of infinite loop. Because when you jump to minus one or to minus 50, it doesn't matter. Once you jump to the other side of the fence, the loop exits. So it seems like this is good advice, even if you're not thinking about uh, someone playing around doing malicious things to your code. Because Correct. I can see it just as likely as me to accidentally do something to my code Correct. where I do something after that, like like the way you've got it, it's after the counter's been been decremented by one that I yeah. could get myself into trouble. Absolutely. So I, I refer to this whole idea as defensive programming. When you have a choice between an if statement where you're saying if it's some exact value or if it's less than something, always go with the less than. Hmm. You will say to yourself, but... 
Mike, it's always going to be zero. Doesn't <laughs> matter. Program defensively because you might be wrong or it might change in the future. And so whenever you find yourself in, a, in that sort of a situation where you have a choice where there's two ways of doing it and they both work, but one of them works generally and one of them works specifically, write your code for the general case because that just might happen someday. I love this. I, because a lot of times I'm sitting there going, well, do I want to go this way or this way? And it, and it actually doesn't matter to me. doesn't matter at all. I could go either way. But now I know the answer is not to jump the fence or to always jump the fence. Check what side of the fence you're on, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Is how, is how Paul phrases it in his article. And I, I entirely agree. So I'm, I'm not going to think of it as, you know, don't check whether you're on the fence. Check whether you've crossed the fence. Right. I like it. Yeah, so I like it a lot. That was like a little programming by stealth light. Yeah, so we basically, we've had like, our programming by stealth was kind of a sort of a programming by stealth. So in total, we now have a full one because we've had two <laughs> half ones. <laughs> so that's how he stealthily gets you to learn stuff. See, guys? Yeah, it's actually, this really does meet the spirit, People, doesn't it? not guys. Jeez, even I say it. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Okay, so back to our normally scheduled programming. Um... Action alerts. Apple have updated and or patched just about everything. And I'm drawing a distinction because we have both feature releases with cool new shiny and security patches. And all of the updates have security patches, but for the older operating systems, it's security patches only, no shiny for you. So macOS, uh, Big Sur 11.6.5, just security. And security update 2022.003 for Catalina is just security. But the other ones, so iOS 15.4, macOS 12.3, watchOS 8.5, tvOS 15.4, and the HomePod 15.4, those are feature updates and security updates. 87 security holes have been squished, in fact. Shoot, I was hoping it wasn't one for, I hate the watchOS ones. Um, In fact, I should just start running it right now. Well, I always tell, we go through this every single time I say this. <laughs> and then we look and I'm not, mine never seems to, I think. Uh, I think it takes up to a week. I think they ran, I think every watch randomly has a day of the week. It does uh, its thing. So as to spread the load on their servers over seven days. Yeah. Which is what I would do if I was writing the software. Um, <laughs> Especially so, since Apple users tend to just go, ooh, new shiny. Click, 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 click. <laughs> yeah. So. The feature updates are cool, and one of them, in fact, is a security feature. So I, I, the main thing I want to say is, you know, even if you're saying, well, I don't want universal control, you still need to patch. It's not just for new Shiny, it is also security updates. But there is also a new Shiny to help to encourage you to update your iOS devices. You can now have face unlock with a mask. So I without the watch setting thing, that up at first, because it, it was, they also wanted to see your glasses. So they said, okay, show me your face with your glasses on. Okay, here's my face with my glasses on. It says, now take your glasses off. And it it said, I have no idea who you are. I'm not proceeding. Well, because I've never done it without glasses on. That's why you don't know what I look like. But you're telling me to take my glasses off. What am I supposed to do? But it's seen me with my glasses off all the time. But I don't know. It was just had its panties in a bunch. I tried it the next time and it worked just fine. And oh, Oh. the other thing I was worried about was that that might take up the place of the alternate appearance. And Steve and I have ourselves as each other's alternate appearance so that when one of us is driving, the other one could pick up their phone and change uh, podcasts is what we use it for almost completely. So, Huh. Okay. But it did not. It didn't break that. 
that is also good. Um, yeah, okay, great. Uh, so yeah, a lot of people wanted this feature. So that is here. It has also been Patch Tuesday. There are no dramatic updates in the Patch Tuesday, but that is absolutely positively no reason not to patchy, patchy, patch, patch. So do that, even though there isn't a particularly scary, scary for me to tell you about. Uh, and then finally, the Linux kernel gets some love, or yeah, we call it love, I guess. Not a good thing, but anyway. There is a very important patch to Linux called Dirty Pipe. It's kind of a fun story how the bug was discovered. Again, a programmer trying to debug some shell script of all things. Um, and he just had this shell script that was concatenating some zip files together into a big zip file. And it would randomly break. And he noticed that the last couple of digits were always the same random bit of really low down nerdy binary code that indicates a zip file. And he recognized them as a header for zip files in, in binary. This is how nerdy he is. He could recognize zip file headers in binary, um, which he was viewing in hex, just for the added. Anyway, he was like, this has to be my code. This has to be my code. I can't have found a bug in the kernel. And he spent a week trying to convince himself his code was broken. And he was eventually forced to conclude it was a kernel bug. And then he figured out how to reproduce the kernel bug on demand. It was a kernel bug. And it actually allowed any process to write to a read-only file or a file they have no access to whatsoever. Ooh, you're on mute, Alison. Whoops, sorry. That was when I reached over to get my charger for my Apple Watch because no, it didn't run the uh, the update. <laughs> <laughs> that that is crazy. Any any file can write. Yeah, you can basically. So the read basically it's. A bypass of the operating system's read-only check. That, that would be good. a big one. <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, proof of concepts abound, like changing the root password, because the root password is stored in a file. It's a hash of the root password. But if you know the password you want, you make the hash you want, and then you write the hash you want, and now you have the root password you want. Wow. Catastrophically did, I, bad. Did they report this responsibly? They did, and it has been okay. patched. Okay. So, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. But if you hear someone talking about dirty pipe, that's what it's about. It is that's overwriting crazy files. he figured that out that way. That is nuts. In, in hex. Is. In in hex. And what I love about the fact is that he refused to believe it was, a, it was a kernel bug. It must have been his code, which is the opposite of so much hubris you see out there. And right. only when he was able to prove to himself that it really was the kernel... And then he got a full proof of concept. And so when he went to the kernel guys, all the ducks were in a row. And it was very straightforward for them to fix it with a patch. So huh. again, it's, uh, some good nerdery going on here this week. Let's yeah. Nerdery. Uh, worthy warnings. Uh, yet again, I feel like a stuck record. It is tax season in the United States of America. The bad guys are trying to trick you into handing over all of your personal information to them instead of the IRS. Don't hand over all of your personal information to them instead of the IRS. That is all. <laughs> um, you know, there are lots of specific examples of specific scams. The bottom line is be double, triple on alert because this is a thing. This is absolutely a thing. Hmm. Notable news. Um, I am sorry to report that the Apple-backed smart home standard matter is yet again delayed in a very Apple-like way to... Fall 2022. But so. it's it's delayed for a really good reason. 
It's this. delayed because so many companies wanted to be part of it. That's why it got delayed. So they, they, you know, we they had like the big five, but it turned out, I want to say it was like 140 companies or some massive number of companies are like, yeah, we want our stuff to be matter too. I guess that's good. The way I heard the report is the software wasn't ready. If the software isn't ready because there's too many people who want to use it, that's, I feel better now. Well, they needed to make sure that it was across all of the different manufacturers, but there were so many manufacturers who wanted to uh, wanted to implement Matter, which is what we want, right? We want yeah. everybody doing it, so that was a good thing. Okay, I I, I feel happier now. Thank you. <laughs> That's the way I heard it. Anyway, I'll, I'll we'll find a source. Good, I like it. Uh, the other very notable thing is that um, Tile have released their first secure. Er, protection feature for their tracking system. Mm. Uh, I do want to make it very clear that they are saying that this is step one of N. They don't say what N is, but they say this is just the first step. So it's not super, but it is literally infinitely better than what they had before, which was nothing. So anyone can now download the Tile app they do not have to create a Tile account. There is a button in that app now to do a scan, which will look for Tile trackers near you that are moving with you. Hmm. Now, here's where the caveats come in. This is not the kind of thing you can do casually because it takes 10 minutes and you must move significantly within those 10 minutes for it to report that there is a Tile moving with you. They recommend you drive away and tell you not to look huh. at the screen. So they literally tell you, we recommend you drive, do not look at the screen while driving. So, so you turn on the scan, you jump in your car, you drive about for 10 minutes, and you come home. And they also recommend you not go around in circles. They recommend you put actual significant distance between you and where you were. Like I say, with many caveats, but before this, there were zero mechanisms for finding rogue tiles. There is now one mechanism, but it is the kind of mechanism that is only useful if you're already suspicious. But that probably covers a lot of people. Like, yeah. You know, if you have a reason to be concerned, there is now a thing you can do. So even if you're not a Tile user, you have to know about Tile, know about, uh, download the app, and then try to run this to see whether it's tracking you. Yeah. So it's the kind of thing where I would hope that helplines would know about. And if someone calls up saying... I'm afraid my spouse is tracking me or something that, you know, spousal abuse helplines would be able to give this as part of the standard. Okay, check your phone for funny software, check your phone for um, app provisioning profiles and run this scanner. So it's kind of interesting that they would, uh, Tile has apparently felt the pressure from everybody saying, ooh, Apple's terrible because you can track people with it, even though they had implemented a lot of these uh, security things ahead of time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. By the way, that I just found a protocol article uh, that said the delay, uh, this is about matter, the delay mm -hmm. wasn't due to technical difficulties. The CSA said it was mainly caused by the growing number of companies that want in. Matter, which is already testing devices from 50 different companies, now has more than 200 on board. Oh, good. Good, yeah. good, good. Yay. Excellent. Okay, uh, last, no, second, second last story. Um, so, uh, there is, the 
emoji in the show notes is a little pushpin icon. This is one that I think might become very significant. So Australia is suing Meta. This is not significant. But what makes it significant is that they are suing Meta over scam advertisements, which succeeded in defrauding Australians from cryptocurrency, because they say that just because you call yourself a platform doesn't mean you're not responsible for the ads you run. You actually had mm. legitimate, you you had reasonable cause to know there was something afoot in the wind and you didn't stop it. Therefore, you are liable. If they succeed, this is a big deal. We shall see. Yeah, so. I wonder, I always wonder how well these things uh, apply across uh, countries. You know, would that make them have to be good in other countries? Not automatically. Okay. But it would certainly catch the notice of regulators elsewhere and it would certainly be very likely to set things in motion. Okay. So it, it's a big deal. If it if the judgment goes against Meta, it's a big deal. So I, I am going to be watching this one very carefully. Um, so uh, top tips, which is always a section I like when we have something to put in here. Uh, we have a fantastic tip from, uh, was it Yope you said in yes. our community? In so, Slack? Yes, so podfeed.com forward slash Slack. It rocks. Lots of cool people in there, including Yope, who, whose name I can pronounce because I can speak Flemish. Um, <laughs> so do, do you want to take the lead on this one, Alison? Well, I don't completely understand ah, it, but, but the I tip will. is... Yeah, why don't, you, why don't you go ahead and do it? So we have known for a long time that we have the keychain in our Macs. And then we got synchronizing of the keychain between iOS and Macs through iCloud. And there has been the ability in recent versions of iOS to view the keychain on iOS, and we've always had the keychain access app on our Macs. And something Apple announced in the keynote, but I never actually saw in action, was that there would be support for two-factor authentication within keychain. Well, there's a whole UI there I just never actually checked. And basically, uh, Yope linked us to a Medium article that shows you how to use the interface Apple added to Keychain so that you can use it effectively like, you know, a a, a cheap one password. You can add those two-factor auth codes into your Keychain and have them synchronize. There is now a Keychain integration on Windows. So this is actually a useful password management tool now that is capable of doing modern two-factor authentication. And also in the last update, they added the ability to add notes to your uh, items as well. So you can actually have like little bits oh, of information. Like secured notes sort of things. Yeah. So you can attach notes to login. So if things like, you remember, I used this email address or stuff like that. Oh. So basically, lovely timely tip to say that the keychain is evolving in this really useful way, and I'm going to bonus tag on the fact that you can now add notes as well. I've Every time I hear people getting excited about using keychain, I get so nervous that, that people get overly excited or appropriately excited, but then use like a four-digit passcode on their phone. <laughs> Don't do that. If you're going to use keychain... Put a proper password on your on your phone that is long and hard to guess, right? And use face or touch ID to make it use livable with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my solution is that I don't do that as securely as I would if if I was using Keychain because I know that my password for one password is wicked long and impossible. Yeah, 
but definitely if you use biometrics if you're going to use keychain. It would be, I, I think, an easier thing to say these days. Well, and and make your password long to get into the phone. Don't yeah, Biometrics yeah. don't save you from a four-digit passcode. Or make it actually delete itself on 10, 10 guesses. Is it compromised? I, I agree it is not as good. It is, okay. You're definitely right, right? The actual best thing to do is a decent password. Not numbers. Tell it. Actually, to be honest, if someone's attacking your phone and they hit the thing and instead of seeing the number pad, they see a keyboard, they're probably done. Oh, but, good point. So if you tell it it's a passcode or password instead of a passcode... That's probably enough. Just Even though seeing it could that be keyboard numbers. is like, oh. <laughs> and some of the automated attack tools actually work by simulating fingers punching in the pin numbers. So as soon as you have the wrong keyboard, those attack tools break. Oh, that's funny. So, yeah. That's, how, that's literally brute forcing iPhones. <laughs> tap, <laughs> tap with a ro- robotic stylus. Anyway, so yes, you're absolutely right. If you're synchronizing all of your secrets, protect them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay, uh, that was top tips. We have no accent explainers, but I do want to link to an interesting insight. Um, I love the Decoder podcast. This time it's actually guest hosted, so it's not actually Neelai Patel. But the guest is someone I, someone who I think of as like a human form of the EFF. I have immense respect. I am so happy they exist on planet Earth, but I don't always agree with them. Uh, and so that is me and the EFF. I literally pay them. Um, I, I am a donor to the EFF, even though I very often shout at them for, for being <laughs> on the wrong side of things. But I think it's really important they exist and I respect them greatly. Well, the EU's Commissioner for Competition, who is also their, the EU's Executive Vice President for a Europe Fit for the Digital Age, which is a job title I just want. <laughs> um, that's such a cool job title. Anyway, she is an amazing, I think she's she's Scandinavian, I think Danish. Oh, now I'm going to regret guessing. Uh, Margaret Vessier, anyway, is her name. And she is, like people think of European bureaucrats as being these stodgy, boring people. She is not. She is an extremely intelligent and extremely eloquent person. And it is very obvious that she's not just doing random things in the hope it helps. She has thought about this deeply. So the work going on in the Commission to protect competition and stuff is not slapdash. There is a brain behind that work. And you get a good idea of what that brain is thinking in this, I think it's a 45-minute interview. It's... It's a, it's a really good episode. So oh, that sounds really uh, interesting. Uh, and it is a Danish brain. You you uh, remembered properly. Phew. <laughs> Phew. Uh, and she's been in the job for a while, actually. Now, she's only recently become the executive vice president for a Europe fit for the digital age, but she has been the commissioner for competition since 2014, which is quite some time. Well, you know, couldn't you just add fit for the digital age to whatever title you already have? Like at work, <laughs> just just add that to your title? <laughs> Sysadmin, for the... Fit, fit for the digital, for the digital age. age. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Actually, what would be a sysadmin not fit for the, fit digital, for the digital age? <laughs> a bad sysadmin. <laughs> right, uh, palate cleansing then. Um, I'm going to go first. Okay. It's my, it's my segment. Um, 
So we have talked quite a few times about cool NASA things. I think we picked as a palate cleanser the fact that they launched a James Webb Space Telescope and it didn't blow up, and then that the James Webb Telescope managed to unfurl itself in its mad origaminess because uh, it was a very big telescope with a very tiny package. Um, it has successfully unfurled. It made its way all the way out to Lagrange 2, which is a long way away from Earth. And uh, then it all went silent because they had a 16-segment mirror that they had to perfectly align to make sure it could see. And I don't know if you remember the Hubble Space Telescope's launch. Yes. But they I launched tr- the Hubble Space Telescope, and only after it was in space, when they tried to use it as a telescope, did they discover that they had ground the mirror wrong and that the thing couldn't see straight. Now I they, would like to say that uh, the reason that's to hit so close to home it was my company that did made that mistake, but not your direct reports. One would oh hope. no 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 no! I didn't have anything to do with it, but we Good. all held wore the mantle of shame until they put the contact lens over that one. So yeah, yeah, it's, they did actually launch a shuttle mission to put glasses on the Hubble. Um, is how I describe it. But yeah, they added an extra optical element to the to the light train. Um, so everyone was like, okay, great, it didn't blow up. Okay, great, it managed to unwrap itself. But until we saw the first picture, all of us were thinking, please don't be Hubble, please don't be Hubble, please don't be Hubble. <laughs> the, the astronomy picture of the day is a tack sharp, perfect photograph of a completely boring star. <laughs> what makes it amazing is that it is from the James Webb Space Telescope. And not only is it tack sharp, it is so close as to be indistinguishable from the theoretically possible maximum resolution for that telescope. Wow. They nailed it. Oh, that, that just thing, gives me chills, Bart. It's perfect. And the other thing I want to say is, you know when you see a picture of a bright star from a telescope, there's pointy bits. The, the flares on the side, yeah. Yeah, they're called diffraction spikes. They're actually caused by the shape of the mirror and or everything between the mirror and the outside world. So if you have a home telescope with a secondary mirror that hangs in front of the primary, there have to be legs to hold it in place. If you have okay. four legs, you'll have four-pointed stars. If you have three legs, you'll have three-pointed stars. So okay. the shape of these things make the diffraction pattern. So every telescope has its own unique shape. Okay. Well, look at the spikes in that star. They don't look like what you're used to seeing because you've got 16 hexagons is what creates that shape of spike. So get used to it. That is the new shape of the coolest images you're going to see. So that's interesting. So that's a good thing that you see those spikes or an unavoidable thing that you see? It's an unavoidable thing. And what I think is cool is that every telescope has a different shape of spikes. So Hubble images have the Hubble spikes. And the James Webb Telescope have James Webb Telescope spikes. And so get used to that sort of six-pointed star thing you're seeing there, because that is what all of the JWST images are going to look like. It's Your six-pointed stars. star, but then it's got a horizontal line as spike on either side, too. So it's like six and a half. Exactly. It's a very distinctive pattern, which is but caused think of by it the as a fingerprint for it. So if you see that, Im- that kind of image, then yes. you know it's from, from JWST. Exactly. So every telescope has their own unique fingerprint, and that is the JWST fingerprint. We have never seen it before. That is the shape of JWST stars. That is so cool. I get yes. I get chills looking at that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take us in an entirely silly direction because it's palate cleansing time. Good. <laughs> A gentleman named Joe Karasik posted on Twitter. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Nope, that's not the original. Uh, Avdi Grimm 
wrote on, uh, I, I believe it's a gentleman, uh, wrote on Twitter, are there any men doing notable work in software? <laughs> and as, as someone, the person I originally saw it from wrote, uh, it, every single person understood the assignment in this tweet. So all of the, all of the answers back are just perfect. Uh, your favorite was, Actually, a man helped Ada Lovelace come up with programming in the 1800s, and I got—I cannot think of a more relevant answer. Uh, let's see. Alistair's favorite was, I mean, men made most of the software industry as it exists now, so I'm going to have to say no. My <laughs> favorites were uh, from one man. I've dabbled in it, but let's face it, as a man, I am far better suited to talk to people and glue colorful sticky notes on Miro boards. I have heard the hard technical, pro- or I leave the hard technical problems to the experts. Um, Neil McKinnon said, men don't just make good coders. It's just not in their nature. And listen, that's a compliment. I totally respect men. Some of my best friends are men. And finally, uh, let's see, Joe Karasik said, oh no, that was the first one that you read, but, uh, you had there, but I just love them. Oh, uh, Diana Montalin said, they like to help. My latest feature passed the boyfriend test and even my dad could understand how it works. <laughs> I can see that one appealing to you. That's, yeah, that's just a little bit. So I just, I just love that everybody understood. There, there's like no comments that don't understand what the assignment of this tweet was. It was just fabulous. That really is brilliant. That is, that is our palate well and truly cleansed. All right. Well, it's time for you to go watch the latest episode of Picard. So I think we should call it. Indeed we shall. But remember, even though I'm enjoying Picard, you remember to stay patched so you stay secure. Well, with that, it's going to wind us up for this week. An amazing week to get to hear Steve sing, and we now have our own official Nosilla Castaway sea shanty. I expect everybody to go home, uh, memorize the words, and sing it back to us. That's what I'm looking for. Anyway, uh, that is going to wind us up for this week. So did you know you can email me at allison at podfee.com anytime you like, and I'll probably answer you. If you have a question or a suggestion, just send it on over, or maybe a review, even better. You can follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. If you want to join in the conversation, you can join our Slack community with great people like Bart over at podfeet.com slash Slack. And you can talk to me and all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. You can support the show at podfeet.com slash Patreon like William did or with a one-time donation at podfeet.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.